Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's message. Uh, I hope that it's encouraging to you and inspiring to you. I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into the scriptures. And I hope that you're able to do that with some people around you, with some community. Um, but if you don't have that, we would love to invite you into the community here at Restore. If you want to take a next step, get more connected, you can just go to restoreaustin.org connect, fill out a card on there, and I will personally reach out to you in the days after you do that. And if you want to grab coffee with me or just get more information about the church, I will make myself available to you for that. As you will hear, we are in this thing called a year around the table, and it really comes from this vision that God's given us that Restore would be a place where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. So A, I hope that you experience the extravagant love of Jesus as you check this message out. And B, if you don't have a table to sit at, we want to invite you to Jesus' table here at Restore. Have you ever been invited to a table where you felt like you didn't really belong? Maybe it was because you were a minority of some sort. Right, the table was filled with people of a certain age or race or gender or socioeconomic status or sexual orientation or achievement level, and, and you just felt kind of out of place. You felt alone. You felt singled out. Or maybe it happens when you get invited to a table and there's some awkwardness between you and someone else at the table. And maybe nobody else even really knows about it, but you know about it and that person knows about it and it feels uncomfortable. I think for me, I often feel the most out of place at a table when I know that there is actually some kind of animosity between me and someone else at the table. A friend was telling me about an experience like this recently. I'm going to call him Brian for this story. That's not his real name, but the point of this is not to put him on blast or anything. Um, and Brian's a good guy. So Brian had really gotten into it with a friend about something some kind of differing political opinions. It started online, as these things often do, and then led to a phone call where Brian admits to me that he let his temper get the best of him a little bit, said some things that he shouldn't have, and the conversation ended with them essentially hanging up on each other. And then they went weeks without speaking. And then out of the blue, Brian gets a text from his friend asking him if he wants to go to coffee. Now, based on the way that the online interaction had gone and the phone call had gone, Brian thought this was a trap, right? Brian thought that the guy was inviting him to coffee so that they could, you know, have another discussion. And so Brian was like, I'm, I got prepped. Like, I read all the stuff. I memorized all the facts. I got my position so down, I was prepared to totally dominate my friend when I met up with him. But Brian got a little thrown off. When he arrives at the coffee shop and the friend greets him with a big hug and says, hey, I'd, I'd love to buy you coffee, whatever you want. But he thought, maybe he's just kind of buttering me up. He's trying to throw me off my game, right? I need to stay ready. I need to stay focused. But then Brian got even more thrown off when the friend sat down and the first thing out of the friend's mouth was, hey, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, man. I know that way more unites us than divides us. So let's just try to squash this and let's go back to being friends. Brian told me he was speechless. He hadn't expected such graciousness from his friend, but he was so glad to receive it. They shared good coffee and great conversation for almost two hours that day. 
And when he got up from the table, Brian described to me a feeling of overwhelming gratitude. Because you see, Brian had been a jerk. He'd come prepared to debate. He was more concerned about winning an argument than winning his friend back. But his friend did the opposite. He invited Brian to coffee and treated him with grace and love that he didn't deserve. Now, that kind of interaction around a table is far too rare in our world, right? But it's powerful, and we need a lot more of it. And that's why we are doing this teaching series that we've been in, this this teaching series called Invited to the Table. Now, last week we talked about how Jesus' table is a place of connection, that he prioritizes connecting with us and connecting with others around his table above anything else. But my question for us this morning is what about broken connections? What about broken relationships and broken promises and all the other brokenness that so often defines our experience in this world? So this morning... We're going to be talking about how Jesus' table is a place of redemption. We're going to be doing it by looking at a story, a time when Jesus used his table to heal a broken person and a broken relationship. So we're going to be in the last chapter of John's account of Jesus' life, John chapter 21. So if you've got a Bible or a phone, you want to follow along, you can turn there, John chapter 21. It's, the, like I said, the, the last chapter in John's account of Jesus' life. The verses will also be on the screen all behind me if you want to follow along that way. Now, if you have some church background, you may know that there are four accounts of Jesus' life in our Bibles. They're often called the four Gospels. They're written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, respectively, and each account kind of bears their name, right? Now, the first three are grouped together in something called the Synoptic Gospels. I want you to raise your hand if you've heard of the Synoptic Gospels, okay? It's a little bit of an academic kind of obscure term, but the Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they're called that because they basically parallel each other for the most part. But John is a little different. Well, actually, John is a lot different. Although all four tell the same basic story with some overlapping events and major plot points, John chooses to cover a number of different stories that are not included at all in the Synoptic Gospels. And the story we're looking at today is one of those stories. It is only found here in John 21. Now, there has been some debate over the centuries as to whether this story and really this entire chapter of John 21 is original to John's gospel. And that's mostly because of the way the chapter right before it ends. So look with me at John 20, 30, and 31. It says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That kind of feels like a conclusion, right? Like a benediction, like, hey, I wrote all these things, this is why I wrote it, we're done. And after reading those lines, it's understandable as to why a group of people don't think that chapter 21 was original, that it was added later as an addendum. But what's really interesting about that is that there is actually no evidence that the manuscript of John ever circulated without chapter 21 in it. It was always included. So even though it feels like something that's a little extra, it was always actually a part of the gospel. So my guess is that John wrote the first 20 chapters, and then he came back and he added the 21st chapter later, but before it was actually distributed out. 
Or it's possible that John, as he neared his death, convened his kind of closest friends, his closest disciples together, and he asked them to write this story, to add it to his account of Jesus' life. And so the question that we have to answer this morning is why, right? Why did John come back and add this epilogue of sorts to his account of Jesus' life? I think the answer is because it really mattered to him. This story was so important to John that he didn't want to send out his account of Jesus' life out into the world without chapter 21 attached. And I'm so glad that he did. I'm so glad that he added it. Because this story beautifully illustrates not just a core tenet of Jesus' table, but a core tenet of Jesus' entire mission. See, John 21 is a story about redemption. It's a story about redemption. So let me set the scene for us. This story takes place a few weeks after the death and resurrection of Jesus. He has already appeared to Mary Magdalene outside of the empty tomb and to some of the other disciples who were hiding in the upper room. But at this point, the followers of Jesus aren't really sure what is supposed to happen next. Now think about it. Try to put yourself in their shoes, right? They've gone from watching their very best friend, leader, savior be killed on the cross the despair of that, the extreme pain of that, to the incredible joy of seeing him conquer death and come back to life. But they have yet to receive instructions about what happens next. They are kind of in limbo, right? Jesus is alive. That has to mean something really big, but they don't know what that big thing is yet. Something is coming, but they don't know what that thing that is supposed to be coming is just yet. So what do they do? They go back to what they know. And for the guys in this story, that meant fishing. So let's pick it up. Verse 1, John chapter 21. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, hey, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now imagine this scene, right? Like they all go back to their kind of respective hometowns. They all kind of from the same area. And they're in this limbo state. Like they don't know what they're supposed to be doing. And I imagine, if you know anything about Peter, Peter is like the guy who's just going to go. He's just going to take charge. He's just going to say something. He's just going to take off. He's just going to do whatever he thinks. He's, he's a little impulsive, right? That's the best way to describe Peter. So they're all sitting around and Peter's like, I, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to go fish right? Like, I can't just wait. I can't just sit here. I'm going to go fishing. This is what I know. This is who I am. And so the guys are like, all right, we'll go with you. Now, the setting here, where they are, is really important. They're at the Sea of Galilee, which, like I said, is where many of these disciples grew up, including the one that is the main character in our story. That's Peter. Peter was from a town called Bethsaida. It's a little fishing town on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. So listen, Peter's not only back home, Peter's back to his old job, the one he left behind three years ago when Jesus said, come and follow me. What the author, John, the one that wrote this, what he wants us to see is that Peter is regressing. And his regression, it's not fully explained by the death of Jesus. Something different happened with Peter. Something happened with him that didn't happen with any of the other disciples, and it's been weighing very heavily on him. We'll find out what that thing is in just a second. But back to the story for now. Fishing isn't going well. 
They just finished an entire night out on the boat. They literally caught nothing. And they're just about to head back to shore when a surprise visitor shows up. Verse 4. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, well, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were actually unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, okay, pause real quick. The disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, the writer, the author. (laughs) Gets me every time. I have to stop and talk about this. He nicknames himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, and then he talks about himself that way throughout his entire account. It's amazing, right? The audacity. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's me, the author, said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. And the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. So Jesus shows up. And he rescues them from a night of terrible fishing. Now, when they figure out who Jesus is, Peter does, again, a very Peter thing. He jumps in the water, fully clothed, and swims to Jesus. Now, like I said, if you're familiar with Peter, this is not a surprise to you. He's a very impulsive guy. Peter's the one who tried to walk on water. Do you remember? Jesus is walking on water. All the other disciples are like, oh, my gosh, Jesus is walking on water. Peter gets out of the boat, and he's like, I'm going to walk on water, too. That's Peter. He's the one who pulled out his sword and attacked the guard who was trying to arrest Jesus. I think he was kind of a bad shot because he took his ear off, um, which, you know, is weird. And Jesus picked the ear back up and healed the guy and said, Peter, put your sword away. Calm down, Peter. You're always jumping into places where you don't belong. Take a second. Take a breath. He's the one who always spoke first and thought later. But when Peter gets to shore... It's not just Jesus that's there waiting for him. Look at verse 9. When they landed, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and some bread. Charcoal fire with fish and some bread. Now, at first glance, this seems like nothing out of the ordinary, right? Jesus was cooking bread and fish on the beach. This was a staple meal of the time period. But I highlighted that phrase, charcoal fire, because it's a dead giveaway that something big is going on here. You see, in the original language that this verse is written in, that's the Greek, a charcoal fire is a single word, anthrakia. That's the word, anthrakia. And anthrakia only appears one other time in the entire Bible. One other time. And that's three chapters earlier in John 18. In John 18, Jesus has just been arrested. He's on his way to trial under the high priest for charges of heresy and defying the Roman government. Charges that if he is found guilty, he will be sentenced surely to death. And these are charges that he would eventually be convicted for and executed for. So John 18, we pick up the story in verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, as did some of the other disciples. Now put yourself in the setting. He'd just been arrested. They'd been praying at the Garden of Gethsemane. The soldiers had come. They'd arrested Jesus. They're following him. That other disciple was acquainted with the high priest, so he was allowed to enter the high priest's courtyard with Jesus, but Peter had to stay outside the gate. Then the disciple who knew the high priest spoke to the woman watching at the gate, and she let Peter in. And the woman asked Peter, you're not one of those, that man's disciples, are you? No, he said, I am not. Because it was cold, the household servants and the guards had made a charcoal fire. 
It's the only other time that this is used in the entirety of Scripture. They stood around it, warming themselves, and Peter stood with them, warming himself. Peter denied Jesus, denied knowing him, denied being one of his disciples. Peter would go on to deny Jesus two more times in just the next couple of minutes. Meanwhile, as Simon Peter was standing by the fire, warming himself, same fire, charcoal fire, they asked him again, you're not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, no, I am not. But one of the household slaves of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, now this is coming back to haunt Peter, his impulsiveness here, asked, didn't I see you out there in the olive grove with Jesus? And again, Peter denied it. Standing around that charcoal fire, Peter did the unthinkable. He denied even knowing the man that he swore up and down he would die for. He denied even knowing him. Not once, not twice, three times Peter turns his back on his best friend, his leader, God himself. Suffice it to say, Peter was never the same after that moment. Remember earlier I talked about how the three synoptic gospels were pretty different from the gospel of John? Well, the story of Peter's triple denial is one of only a handful of stories that makes it into all four gospel accounts. It was very, very important. Knowledge of it was so widespread and it was deemed so important that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record that triple denial happening. This was a big, big deal. Peter really messed up, and it really messed Peter up. Even after Jesus rises from the dead and appears to him and the other disciples in the other upper room, Peter still struggles. He keeps regressing. Now listen to this. He not only regresses back to his old town and back to his old job, we find out in just a minute he actually regresses back to his old name. Later in the story, Peter, Jesus calls Peter Simon, son of John, three different times. Now, if you're a Bible nerd like me, you already know that Peter had a name change during his time of traveling around with the other disciples. Here's the story. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you think I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John. There it is. Because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn it from any human being. Now I say to you, you are Peter. He renames him. You are Peter, which means rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. What a moment. In Peter's life, can you imagine Jesus Christ looking you in the eyes and saying, I am going to build my church with you. I am going to give the keys to the kingdom of heaven to you. See, Peter's new name was deeply connected to his new purpose, this mission that Jesus had placed him on. But after his denial, it feels like that's all gone. It's all over feels like his purpose is through. He's messed it up, and he's messed it up beyond repair. He used to be Peter, traveling around the world, building churches, announcing God's kingdom. 
But now he's back to being Simon, son of John, a fisherman living in his hometown. Now there is no doubt in my mind that that smell of charcoal fire triggered all those memories for Peter. I imagine him standing on that beach, dripping wet from just having swam 100 yards to see Jesus in some kind of daze as soon as that smell hits his nostrils, remembering and replaying that fateful night of denials over and over and over again in his mind. But then Jesus breaks the silence. He tells them, grab some of the fish they just caught and bring them over to the fire. And then he says, come and have breakfast. That gets me, man. Jesus invites him to the table. He invites Peter to the table again. Now, you really have to understand the history, right, of what has transpired between Jesus and Peter to feel the full weight of this moment. Not only all the stuff I had already mentioned, but the last time, did you know the last time they shared a meal together was on the night that Jesus was arrested? The Last Supper, right? They're all around that table in the upper room. If you remember this story, listen to the exchange that they have, Peter and Jesus. Jesus told them, tonight all of you will desert me. Peter declared, Even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter. This very night before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. No, Peter insisted. Even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. That's the last time they shared a meal together. Even after Peter goes back on that promise... Even after he denies Jesus three times, even after he totally abandons him as he is executed on the cross, even after he regresses back to his old town and his old name and his old job, Jesus invites Peter to the table. He never gave up on him. He never gave up on him. Even when Peter had long given up on himself, Jesus never gave up on him. I love how Barry Jones talks about this moment in his book called Dwell. He says, the charcoal fire of John 18 was the place of Peter's denial. For Peter, shame had a smell, that of burning charcoal. But the charcoal fire of John 21 is the place of Peter's restoration. The simple invitation of Jesus to his friend is come and have breakfast. Come and have breakfast. But I love that Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't just give Peter a place at his table. He gives him a purpose again, too. Here's what happens next. John 21, verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Hey, Simon, son of John. There's that old name. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, there's some debate on kind of what he's talking about here. I think it makes the most sense. He's talking about the fish and the fishing and his old life. Peter, do you love me more than this old life that you've gone back to? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, well, then feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, well, then take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. So Jesus said, well, then feed my sheep. Three times Jesus asked Peter if he loves him. 
Just like John 18 when Peter is asked three times if he knows Jesus. See, what Jesus is doing here, he's helping Peter replay the very worst moment of his life, but with the possibility of a different ending. It's really beautiful. My therapist does this with me. Like, this is high-level stuff that Jesus is doing in this moment. He is allowing Peter to go through those three denials and replace them with three affirmations of love. Because around that first charcoal fire, three questions led to three denials. But around this charcoal fire, three questions lead to three affirmations of love. And just like that, around a makeshift table on the beach with Jesus, Peter is redeemed. He is restored. It's no wonder that Peter jumped into the water fully clothed and ran as fast as he could when he realized that the man on the shore was Jesus. After being haunted by this failure for so long, Peter knew that his only hope of redemption was found in Jesus. Peter ran to the only one who could forgive his sins, the only one who could heal his pain, and the only one who could redeem his past. But here's what I don't want you to miss, okay? Peter isn't redeemed just for redemption's sake. I want to say that again because it's very important. Peter isn't just redeemed for redemption's sake. Jesus doesn't invite him to the table and walk through these three questions with him just so that Peter can keep regressing but feel a little bit better about it. That's not who Jesus is. Look at what he said to Peter after his redemption. Then Jesus told him, follow me. It's that same call from three years ago when Jesus found him fishing for the first time. Come and follow me. Jesus is telling Peter, I not only have a place for you at my table, I have a purpose for your life. And I'm telling you, Peter, it's not here in your old town doing your old job with your old name. You are Peter. I have given you the keys to the kingdom and called you to feed my sheep. Now come and follow me. Leave all this other stuff behind. Come and follow me. Now, we've been talking a lot over the last couple of months about how everyone has a seat at Jesus' table. But that's not the end of the story. Taking your seat at Jesus' table is just the beginning. You see, just like he told Peter, Jesus is calling all of us to follow him. Because no matter who you are, what you've done, or how many times you've messed up, Jesus has a place and a purpose for you. No matter who you are, what you've done, or how many times you've messed up, Jesus has both a place at his table and a purpose for your life. Everybody is welcome at Jesus' table. Everyone who wants a seat has one. Jesus offers forgiveness and love and life to everyone who says, yes, I will defend those truths until the day that I die. But it does not stop there. It starts there. It does not stop there. We aren't redeemed just for redemption's sake. We are redeemed and set free so that we can leave every other empty thing behind and follow Jesus. As scripture says, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. 
We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Now, I want to be clear again. Jesus' love for us is not based on anything that we do. We can never earn it. We can never lose it. But make no mistake about it. Jesus' love is not passive and it is not dormant. It moved him. It moved him from heaven to earth. It moved him to travel all over the known world, forgiving sins, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, setting the oppressed free, welcoming the stranger, and offering love to anyone and everyone he encountered. And eventually that love moved him to the cross. Jesus' love is active. It moved him, and listen, it should move us too. Jesus' love is active. It moved him, and it should move us too. I know I like to quote people a lot on Sunday mornings, really kind of like wise and brilliant people, people I read. I love to read. So I find these great quotes, and I just want to share them with you. But I want to tell you, there are only a handful of quotes that have truly changed my life the first time I ever heard them. And this is one of them from my friend Shane Claiborne. He says this, If we lose a generation of young people in the church, it won't be because we didn't entertain them. It will be because we didn't dare them to do something meaningful with the gospel in light of the world we live in. A lot of young people nodding their heads in this room right now. But I'm telling you, this transcends age. We are losing people like crazy in the church. And there are a myriad of reasons I've talked ad nauseum about them from up here. But I'm telling you that one of them, a huge one, is that we are not challenging people to take steps of love and life, to do something meaningful and purpose-filled with their lives in light of the world in which we live. Jesus' love moved him. It should move us too. Jesus doesn't just redeem us for redemption's sake. He gives us a place at his table and a purpose for our lives. Now, during this year around the table, we've been talking about some of these purposes. Things like being a part of a family, living invitationally, pursuing justice for the marginalized, looking for ways to be generous and including everyone at God's table. And those things manifest themselves in a myriad of different ways depending on how God has made you and where he has placed you. Dr. King, I'm a a huge fan of Dr. King, but I also am a huge fan of his daughter, Bernice. She's an incredible pastor and activist in her own right. She often talks about how God's kingdom, that kingdom work, it happens all over the place. How the work is online and offline. The work is in the church and on the streets. It's in art and speaking and music and conversation. The work is wherever God has placed you and however he has made you. I'm not going to sit up here and tell you what your purpose looks like, what your work looks like. I'm going to talk about some common things that the church has always been about and that Jesus was always about that we can participate in. But the way it uniquely expresses itself in your life It's intimate. It's unique. It's just as unique as you are. So my one question for you then as we close is this. What's holding you back? What's weighing you down? What's tripping you up? What's preventing you from stepping in to that God-given 
purpose in your life. We are, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing this really beautiful song called Behold together, the song that we've really come to love as a church. And as we sing, I want to invite you to pray and ask Jesus to show you what is keeping you back. What is preventing you from stepping in to that God-given purpose? As Shane said, right, what does something meaningful with the gospel in light of the world we live in look like for you? And what's stopping you from stepping into that? So at this time, whether you decide to stand up and sing or whether you just want to sit and reflect, listen to the prompting of Jesus. Listen to that little still small voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to you. And then take a step toward it. Because I'm telling you, living right in the middle of God's purpose for your life, there is no joy like that. There is no peace like that. There is no adventure like that. Peter knew it. I've experienced it. And I want it for you. So let me pray. God, we just are so grateful for this beautiful story. As so many of us are like Peter. So many of us act impulsively. So many of us put our foots in our mouths. But beyond that, all of us have fallen short. All of us have struggled. All of us have messed up. Thank you that you are a God who makes clear through this story and many others that no matter who we are, what we've done, or how many times we've messed up, we have a place at your table and we have a purpose for our lives. So I pray, God, that if we haven't come and taken a seat at your table, that we would do so today. And that we haven't leaned in to the purpose that you have placed on our lives, that we would do so today. And lastly, if we have, if we've done both of those things, but it's just been a while since we've really leaned into it. We've sat at the table, we've stepped into the purpose, but somewhere along the way we got distracted. Somewhere along the way, something else took precedent. I pray that you would reveal that to us, God. Show us what's in the way of us fully leaning on you and stepping into this great adventure that you have in following you. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.